0: I was listening to the sermon this past week, and this guy said this, and I thought it was so profound I wanted to share it with you. And that's that, you know, our faith is really different, and that's because there's a beginning point that we very well know exactly when it took place. There was a moment when our faith did not exist, and then the next moment it did. And, and the way that worked is this. Jesus lay in a grave, and his lungs were not expanding, and they were not contracting. And the synapses in his brain were not firing. And his heart was not beating. It was not pumping. The circulatory system in his body had completely shut down. The blood was not going through all of his extremities. There was nothing happening. And that happens all the time, right? I've officiated at more funerals than I know how to count at this point in my life. And each time I sit there and I look, I've carried in little children into this auditorium and watched the service as they've been remembered and grieved i've sat here with dear friends of mine who have been left behind and yet each time you know there's a finality to this thing you watch this whole if it's an open casket you can see the person and you say this is the end for them in this life there will be no more and yet one minute later if you were there at the right moment jesus blood started to pump and the oxygen filled his lungs and the synapses started to fire and in that moment when the first synapse started to fire and when the heart started to pump and the blood started to go through his veins again, our faith was born. Isn't that something? Just think about that for a second. There was nothing called Christianity one minute. There was a thing called Judaism. There was a thing called the Old Testament. There were all these containers of faith. There was all of this different stuff that that was building towards this moment, and yet it had all died and it was over, and Satan had won. And last week when we were here, we remembered this and we celebrated it, hopefully with a great amount of joy, because what happened in that moment was the game changed for everybody, not just for some people, but for everyone in one one sense. There was hope given. Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. And the first son of God was revealed when Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't mean he started to exist that moment. It means that he started to be revealed in this powerful way that we started to understand. And You know, the Bible tells us that Peter, James, and John, they couldn't even get their minds wrapped around this thing, even though they had been told ahead of time it would happen. Jesus had said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And what did they do? They either forgot or just couldn't process it. I'm with the couldn't process it part. I, I expect they just didn't get it. I wouldn't have gotten it either, right? I don't think you would have gotten it. I think sitting there on the sidelines and watching this whole thing with Jesus, we wouldn't have known, but that's the beginning part of our faith. And frankly, in that moment, what we have to realize is this is the most powerful moment in history. It is the most change-oriented moment. It is the moment that transformed everything. Hope was born in this moment. And we need to be changed by that. Now, I grew up in church. How many of you grew up in church? If you didn't, it's okay. Just raise your hand. And how many of you grew up in a church that taught you that sin was bad? My church told me that sin was bad, and it never stopped saying it. Sin was awful in my church. Every Sunday, I learned about sin and how I shouldn't fall into sin, and that if I did, that if I somehow felt, I felt like I was on a pedestal, and that if I somehow fell off to the right, left, front, back, any what direction, that there was just nothing to catch me. What if my girlfriend got pregnant? Really? This was the stuff we were worried about. What if unlike Bill Clinton I did inhale? What if what if the list goes I'm not making fun of one of our presidents I'm making fun of a lot of them cuz we know that others have inhaled too, right? George W Bush just admitted it. It was good. What what if And what if I went down one of those roads and I got so far down that I couldn't come back? You know, then sin would have conquered my life and I would be that disappointment. Every week I remember the senior citizens in my church, and I'm the pastor's kid, just so you know, I'm a PK. Uh, The pastor's kid, you know, the people would look at you and they'd say, I wonder if he fell this week. And I'd be like, nope, another week. I didn't really bomb out in my life yet, you know. That was kind of my perspective. But there was this sense in which I was built with this sense of sin all around me. And I had to ball all that up inside of me and say, I'm not going to do this, that, and the other thing. But you know what? I wanted to. I did. I did. You did too. Come on, right? You know, I mean, we want to fail. Or at least we want to explore the miniature versions of failure. I wanted to get out there and try some things. And I didn't because they told me in my church that you shouldn't do this, this, and this. And I wanted to somehow ball it all up within me. And yet the thing within me didn't actually die. It just sat in the middle of it all. And yet this thing inside of me, this broken, sinful, desirous list of bad things that I wanted to do and still probably want to in some ways... Doesn't live up to what Jesus is about, right? When he, when he died and when he rose again, this moment when our faith was born, the most powerful moment in the history, what's going on in here is not very powerful and what's going on over there is absolutely, essentially powerful, right? What's more is our church, I had a discrepancy in my church with the way that we worshiped and here's how it went. Our church every Sunday sang this hymn and you probably don't even know what it's called, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And I would sing it because that's what we did. My faith has found a resting place. Ugh. Honestly, that's how I sang it. And by the time I was in high school, I'm not picking on that hymn. If you love that hymn, by all means, love it. But the way I sang it, nobody should ever sing it again. Okay. And by the time I was in high school, if you said "Amen," I woke up. I just woke up because that's how I got through sermons. I clenched down the sin inside of myself and I said, I'm going to be a part of the sin prevention camp and I'm going to hold it all in here and I'm not going to fail in any big way, but I'm not going to experience the life and power of the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, I'm just going to avoid all this fa- failure. And what's more is I'm going to, it went right along with my worship life. My worship life is singing a few little hymns and saying like this, and then we're done. And when the sermon came up, I fall asleep. And then when the ended, my dad was the pastor, so I, you know, if he caught me, it was trouble. So I always acted like I was praying like this. And then when he said amen, I was like, amen, you know? This is true. I mean, this is just absolute fact about my life in church. And so when people, like, this guy actually did fall asleep in first service as I was telling this story and I was like, oh my goodness, you know. But th- I understand. Church is not the most fascinating place in the world and it's especially not fascinating if we don't think about that one moment that changed everything if our lives aren't somehow changed and tied into, if we haven't died and rose again with Jesus, if we don't have this sense of awe over what God has accomplished, if we haven't attached ourselves to this thing in a worshipful way, then what's happening is that we actually have an issue where we just, there's no life in the whole thing anyway, right? There's no life in this faith at all. And then we can sing, my faith has found a resting place. And I think my faith found a resting place and it hid from God in that song. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't that it hid in God, it hid away from God. Okay, my faith is over here and I'm just going to hide. And my sin's over here and I'm going to hide and keep it clenched in. It's not going to inhale. It's not going to get anybody pregnant. It's not going to do any bad stuff. It's not gonna. But it isn't alive either. And I was all about sin prevention and not all about life. When I was about 17 years of age, something happened. I went to this room. My parents made me go, of course. And it was a room filled with kids. And this guy got up and gave a sermon. And I don't remember what he said. I didn't think it was all that amazing. I remember thinking he was kind of boring, truth be known. And then something hit me. Somebody started talking. And it wasn't out there. It was in here. C.S. Lewis writes about this moment in his life and said he was the most unwilling convert in all of England he was surprised by joy, he said, because there was somebody else in the room. And he realized that he was living a less real life than the somebody who was outside of there. I can remember what that felt like. Psalm 2 says they were to rejoice and trembling. And I felt afraid and I felt loved all at the same time. And I said, wow, this God, because that's what it must be, has he likes me and I don't like me. And there was this kind of feeling, and I, I had this sense that whatever those lungs inhaled in, the, in that tomb a couple thousand years ago was alive and well, and whatever was in me, which I would have thought was more alive because I thought I'm me-centric and I'm thinking I'm really alive, it felt less alive because God was so alive. Michael said these words, he said, we've got to get small. Well, it felt small. I felt small and I felt better. That's what I felt in that moment. And I had this experience with God, and I didn't know what to do with about it. I called my mom and said, Mom, I had this experience with God. She said, great. And I said, yeah, I'm going to live my the rest of my life. I'm going to live excited for Jesus. And, she, and my mom was like, wonderful. That's great news. I'm so excited. And then I came down off of that plane. You know what I'm saying? I came down off of the mountain and I went back to my, that was my junior year of high school. And I went into school and I met a new girl, dated her, I had a math test and I had to study for it. I had a part-time job and I had to get to it. I had all of this different stuff and that passion and all of that worship, that deep expressiveness that I sensed with God, it went away. And I always had this kind of sense back there that there was something alive and that I was slowly kind of dying away from it. And that whatever Jesus did in the tomb, whatever God did in Jesus by raising him from the dead, I couldn't quite feel it anymore. But I know it was there because God had somehow reached into my life and grabbed a hold of me. And there was something there, and yet I couldn't live up to it. It fell away. I just kind of, I got distanced from it. When the Bible talks about this, it doesn't talk in terms of sin prevention. God's against sin because it destroys humanity. And if you're gonna sin, by all means stop. We'll just, can we put that out there so that you don't have to go tell people that your pastor said it's okay to sin? Now, it's not. It's gonna hurt you to sin. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and the life of the resurrection and how we enter in and engage and become a part of that. That's what faith is about. And our faith was not alive before Jesus rose from the dead and it was alive the minute That ended. That moment changed everything to the point where there could be a new heaven and a new earth, and where the earth, the creation groaning, could turn into a creation restored, and where our molecules and ourselves will turn into the people God created us to be eventually. And we are blessed with this life in Jesus Christ. And it's supposed to be life giving. I, I went for a couple years kind of trying to regain that faith moment in my life, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. Forgive this. This is a whole lot of autobiography. We're going to get to the scriptures this morning, but you're going to have to walk through my life before that. For two years, I tried to get back to this moment, and I tried to tell my friends about it. I said, something happened back there. Finally, I came up with with a decision. I decided I was going to go away and study theology because if you don't know how to find God, I figured I had this experience with God. I better go chase him down. This is how I met Pastor Tim, by the way is actually chasing down this theology dream. I met Jen and Tim at this college I went to to study theology, and I didn't want to go study theology because I wanted to go into ministry. I just couldn't figure out what my life was supposed to be about when I had this moment with Jesus, and then it receded, and then everything else was just back to, my faith is found a resting place. I'm going, I was so alive, and now I'm dead. And the Bible tells me that Jesus is so alive, and yet I don't feel very alive. And what is this whole thing about? And the people in my church don't seem alive. Why am I alive? Why do? I, why am I here? What's going on? So I went away, and I started I studied theology, and I learned that theology textbooks are not alive. But I ran into something else. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I admitted my dad let us watch The Eye of the Tiger, but we weren't allowed to listen to anything else that was rock and roll music. There was nothing allowed in our home like that. I'm admitting a bunch of things. You're going to think I'm quite sheltered. by the, and, and I was. There's some truth. My life early on was very sheltered. And I, was, I wasn't was allowed to listen to all this stuff. And I ran into a rock band when I was a freshman in college. It was 1994, and I started to listen to music way back. I started to listen to music from 84 and 94. You know what I'm saying? And I ran across you 2 the Joshua tree, and my life was changed. I'm serious. I listened to Bono, and I still like, Shelby makes fun of this, and she should probably, but I still like Bono. I mean, there's something about this guy, and he makes us uncomfortable because he's half Christian and he's half rock star, right? I heard him last week give his testimony. He talked about this guy interviewing me. He says, so you pray? Yes, I pray. Sometimes we get all the kids in the bed. My wife and I, we even just sit there and pray, he said. And he said, who do you pray to? And Bono says, well, I pray to, to God. And he says, To God, who's God? And he says, to Jesus. He says, to Jesus? The 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 interviewer was really kind of cynical. To Jesus, really? And Bono says, yep, to Jesus. He says, do you really think Jesus rose from the dead? Yup, Physically? Like the human body actually rose from the dead? And Bono says, yes, I do. It was just this moment. That, that's last week, well, 22, 20 years ago or whenever it was, I ran into the Joshua Tree, the, U2's 1984 album, and you don't have to like this music. Like some music, please like some music someplace, but this doesn't have to be your type. But yet I listened to this music, and I heard Bono say these words, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And he started to sing, and I was like, I haven't either. Because Jesus is alive, and my hymn singing isn't alive. My sin inside of me isn't going away. It's just kind of hidden inside of this thing. And it's no better because it's hidden. Quite frankly, I wish it would have inhaled because I think it would have just been more authentic. You know, the whole thing. I just wanted to close it down in here and have this little dark ball of sin inside of me. And I'd had no life and no resurrection. It was all about sin prevention and never about Jesus and never about what he actually accomplished. And I ran across Bono and he started to sing about these streets that have no, no names. And he sang about these walls that were inside that he wanted to tear down and all of these different things. And I said, this is what I want. Why does this thing in a rock band that I didn't at that point even know espouse anything close to Christianity look more real than the hymn singing over here in my Baptist church that I grew up in? My faith has found a resting place. You're never going to want to hear this hymn by the time the sermon is done, are you? And you may want to go out and buy a used 2 CD, which would be fine. When God tells us to worship, it looks a lot more like Bono than it does that thing over there. It just does. And if you don't know that, I hope you do very, very soon. In Deuteronomy 6, it says this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is. Now just stop there for a second. The fact that this God is, that he can hang suns in the sky, that he can tell people to breathe, and they do, that he can tell water to recede from dry land and separate it, that he can create plants that feed animals that continue to be so amazing that we're still discovering some of them, even as they're going extinct. The fact that God can do all that, the fact that this God is, is amazing. And the fact that he died and that he actually started to breathe again is even more amazing, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, maybe it says. You know, you can't love things halfway. Love is a passion word. That word means to obey God on one end, but to deeply tie ourselves to the resurrection of Jesus on the other and say, we want to be people who have all of our lives built around this moment. We want to have gone all the way through the crucifixion with Jesus and sit there dead in the grave and then say, yes, he's going to breathe again. The circulatory system is starting to pump. The brain is starting to fire. There is an aliveness to this Jesus. And it's supposed to transform our lives, and we're supposed to scream out like Bono and say, yes, we're going to be transformed by this, and yes, we're going to celebrate, and yes, we're going to be excited, and yes, we're going to build everything. We're going to do this all the way with with the pedal to the metal, with gas getting to the engine, with all cylinders firing. We're going to go all the way. How are we going to do something like the resurrection halfway? How can you do that? I realized my church when I was growing up felt like an eight-cylinder engine that was firing on one to two cylinders. You know what I'm saying? My faith has found a resting place. My faith was finding a hiding place. It was going away. And I was dying a slow, faith-filled death, if you will. And God wanted to say, listen, I am different than this. And if you've never heard this God say it, you need to hear it now. He wants to be worshipped in passion. He wants to be pursued with all of who we are. He wants to be deeply loved. And the Bible as my church espoused it when I was growing up, in some ways told me that I needed to ball all of the sinful desires up inside of myself, and I need to just never let them out. And yet, the actual scripture says this. In Galatians one, it says, "For freedom Christ has set us free." What does it mean to be free? That when somebody speaks to you, you can respond. When somebody tells a joke, you can laugh. When somebody tells you that they're hurting, that you can cry. When there's something that happens that should make us all angry, that we can respond in our spirits and say, we are mad. That's what freedom is, right? So when God says that our lives have been reborn and we are free, what we should respond with is a tremendous amount of joy. When God tells us we're wrong, we should respond with a tremendous amount of brokenness and sadness and repentance. When God tells us that we are deeply loved, we should feel the most love that any person could ever feel. Why don't we then? And this has been the mystery of my life. Because while I experienced something with God, that something went away very quickly, and it took years to come back in any form at all. And when it did come back, it didn't come back consistently. Why couldn't I experience worship and short? Because what I experienced when I was in the presence of God in that moment, sitting in that room that my parents made me go to, was something close to worship. I trembled and had joy at the same time. There was a sense that God was speaking. I have a sense that God wants to have that with every one of his children. It's not a Josh thing. It's not a pastor thing. It's not a theology thing. It's a thing that God wants to have with people. And those people can be all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds, and they can be parts of all sorts of churches, but he wants to have it because he is deeply committed to the human race. He loves us. This past week, I looked up the word worship, and this is, I blocked and copied. This is just a slide made out of the and copy from Google. It said that worship is two different things. You'll see on the top it's a noun, and then the bottom it's a verb. Hopefully you remember your grammar. A noun is a person, place, or thing, right? It says the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity, the worship of God. That's what I felt when I was almost 17 years of age, 22 years Ago This coming August I had this moment with God and I felt this thing and I said that God is real because I had a worship moment with God and then I said I'm never going to stop worshiping this God because I feel this God and I stopped feeling God and I stopped worshiping and then I went and did whatever. Because I had a math test and then a history test and a part-time job and a girlfriend and then another girlfriend. And then, you know, the the, the life just kept going on. I was busy with my budding MBA career in those 16 and 17-year-old years. And I couldn't be troubled with what it means to follow God. That's really true. I thought I was going to be an MBA star. Have you seen me play basketball? It wasn't going to happen. That's just what I put in the place of God for a couple of years of my life. And the list goes on and on. But I couldn't get back to this place of worship because I was in these other places doing other things. But this really helped me to look at it this way because the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration, that, that's not the only definition. There's a verb here. It says, to show reverence and adoration for a deity, to honor with religious rites. In other words, there's something in worship that we can do And there's something in worship that we experience. And one is a noun and the other is a verb, and that's okay. Because God wanted us to experience the noun, but we have a real difficult time experiencing the noun, and we actually need to get to the verb. In other words, if you don't like your grammar, let's put it more simply, the doing of worship protects the heart of worship. In other words, if you're not willing to act and what it means to be a God worshiper, then you aren't capable of experiencing what God wants to give you in the way of a heart of worship. It takes your commitment. It took my commitment. When I look back 22 years ago to this moment where I experienced this whole thing with God, and it was awesome. I can't tell you. I thought that all of this stuff that I've been believing kind of in my head is turning real in my heart. What is this? I just couldn't imagine. I look back on that. It was just the moment for me. And that moment faded quickly. And remember in 1999, we had this thing called Y2K. Remember this? And we all were told that our computers needed to get compliant or else. And I don't remember what we were all supposed to do uh, to get our computers compliant. I don't remember. But I do remember where I was when Y2K hit. I was in Jay and Carol Deering's backyard around a campfire with Tim. And I remember thinking... The lights are going to go out, and this is going to be great. I had this kind of anarchical spirit within me, you know, just kind of this, I want to see the man get it. Let's see the world. Jay did not want to see that happen because he was in charge of Limerick Generating Station at the time, and he was like, you know, we're going to melt down and be in in trouble. But I was like, let's see what happens when all of our computers fail. It'll be nice. I know how to fish, and I can catch trout, and we'll live on the land, you know. I had all these feelings in my – and we were sitting by that campfire, and it got to be like – whatever time and we didn't have a watch so one of us decided to walk over to the house and we've been out there for hours and I think we just lost complete we went over there and I think it might have been me Tim and another friend of ours were hanging out and I looked in the window and it was 1207 and the lights were on all of what I had hoped for you know it just didn't work out well compliance that's all most of that's free but compliance is a big deal right And the distance between what we want to do and what we actually do, if those things don't comply, there is a massive amount of problem for us. And when the verb doesn't comply with the noun, we have a problem. When the doing of worship doesn't comply with what the heart of worship is supposed to be, we're not going to get where we're going. There's no way to make that happen. If we don't actually pull ourselves into compliance, then something's wrong. Now, You can't get very far in life through disciplines. You can't actually develop things in your life that makes a real difference in your spiritual walk. Most of what you are with God depends on him and his grace, and he promises to give it to you freely. And yet we can't enter into that without actually at least acknowledging it with minimal behaviors. What I've learned about the church is most of us don't live those minimal behaviors, and we start to lose track of what it means to be worshipers because we don't have those little pieces in our lives that allow us to experience God. What I didn't have at 17 years of age was this sense inside of me that I had to bring into compliance with God's love all of those pieces of my life that were not in compliance, and they weren't all that bad. It wasn't really all that much my sinfulness that was in the way of God. It was the fact that I didn't know I needed to give him time consistently, little bits of it on a regular basis. I just didn't know that. I was told it, but I didn't buy it. And if you really have to work at a relationship, is that relationship really a relationship? And do we want it? I always had this dream that I would be in a relationship where it would actually work without a lot of effort, which is a pipe dream. And it's a pipe dream with God as much as it's a pipe dream anywhere else. The God of the universe says, I want you to be passionate about me. And in order to live out those passions, the church has lived out three different things. The rest of this morning, I want to just take just a few brief things. And I want you to take notes. You don't have to do it with a pen. You have to do it in your heart and in your head. Somehow you need to keep this in mind. The church, as far as we can look back, believes in three different types of disciplines that take the verb of worship and turns it into something that complies with the noun, that takes the doing of worship and helps it to protect the heart that God wants you to have because he really does want you to have that mountaintop experience and that walk with him that we want. You want that thing. If you know it, I don't know if you know it or not, but you do want that thing. I promise you, this is what God created you for, is that deep, passionate, worshipful walk with him, the expressiveness that gets your life in order. So let's just look for a second, because there's three things, that, and they're very simple, and they're very normal, and you're going to go, I've heard this before, but the first is prayer, and the second is scripture, and the third is music. Isn't that simple? Wherever you have a church, you will have these three things. There is not a part of the world where one of those things is not part of the church. Everywhere you go, you go to a Catholic church, that's where they are. You go to Cairo, Egypt this morning, and people are worshiping God, you will find prayer, scripture, and music. If you go to Tokyo, Japan, you will find these three things. If you go to Bolivia, you will find these three things. If anybody's worshiping in the Antarctic this morning, they are doing it this way. Churches look fantastically different, right? But they never lose these three things or they stop being church. And quite frankly, they're because they are the disciplines on which worship is built. They protect the heart of what worship is supposed to be in our lives. And without this stuff, something is massively missing. Without prayer, without scripture, and without music. You know, prayer just means that you give of your heart to God and tell him the truth about you. Do you know that? When you pray... Some of you are Catholic, so you're going to be tempted to pray the Our Father. Or you're going to be tempted to pray whatever prayer your mom and dad told you to pray before bedtime or before mealtime. Or you're going to pray whatever becomes kind of a litany in your head, something that is written and kind of you just keep going back to. But that's not what God wants to hear. He wants you to look inside yourself and say, what is anxious about me? What am I afraid of today? What am I in the midst of walking out that is not very easy? And he wants to hear about you, the real you the one that you easily leave hidden, put it into a small prayer and tell them. God wants us to get scripture. Now I get told as often as I tell people about the scriptures that I can't read the scriptures and I am so sympathetic. I want you to know when I was a kid, my Baptist church told me you should read the Bible. So I picked up the Bible and I got through Genesis and I got through Exodus and I got to Leviticus. And oh, Leviticus. Leviticus. And I've since read Ecclesiastes and I've since read all sorts of prophets and they're not easy. And after a lot of effort, I can make sense of some of this stuff. But let me tell you, it is not easy to have your heart transformed just by reading a bit of scripture because you're reading this stuff that is so old and it's, I mean, literally 3,500 years old, some of it. It goes way, way back. And we go, what does this have to do with me? Well, let me tell you that you can cheat, okay? And I'm giving you permission. Go on one of those websites where they just email you a verse a day and read that verse. Start by listening to God and speaking to him in the smallest forms. And then go to the scriptures and just take one verse. It would be better to read one verse every day than to read 30 verses and not remember them. If you remember one verse and just keep focusing on it, you're going to get a bit of scripture in your head. And you're going to be transformed to be a worshiper. If you can read a chapter, by all means do. If you can read 10 chapters, go on and read 10. But if all you can remember and keep your mind focused on is one verse, then keep your mind focused on one verse. But get a little bit of scripture in there. The third one is music. I was musically gifted all my life, really, until I met Shelby. Shelby. And for good reason, Shelby turns on the radio every time I start to sing. I really thought I had a decent voice, and I realize now I don't. But I have been blessed because the world has caught up with my issue. And that is, we have these great things called Spotify and iTunes and any number of different venues through which I can pump worship music into my life. There is no excuse for any person on this planet who needs to worship God and can't find somehow a musical version of that. It might surprise you that I think music is so important, and I think it's actually essential. Along with prayer and scripture, the church has always believed that your heart needed to be engaged, and it's either easy to get your head engaged in the scriptures and somehow to become complaining before God in your verbiage and prayer, but what's really hard to do is get your heart to not engage when music is going on around you. You need these three things. They are parts of what it means to be the church, and they are part of what it means to be a Christian. And without these three things, let me tell you something. You can't protect the heart of worship and what God wants to do in your life. And what's more is you can't be Christian. Let me say it again. You cannot be Christian. I don't mean you're not going to go to heaven because that's up to God. And he'll very well get you into heaven through Jesus and all that. That's no problem. But you can't live Christianly in your work, in your family, in your home, in your marriage, in your life without becoming a worshiper in all of those places. And you need to import moderate, minimal versions of what God wants to do in your life wherever you go. And that means if you don't pray every day, there's an issue between you and God. That means if you don't read the scriptures every day, there's an issue between you and God. And if you don't take those truths and somehow put them into practice where you live, if you if you don't listen to worship music and get connected and at least hum along. I know I'm not musically gifted, but I can hum along. I was going down uh, Franklin Street yesterday uh, walking uh, with, I think I was with one of my kids, and I heard this music. And it, it's got, somebody was singing, and it was obvious it was not professional music. And here comes a guy running, and he's got these headphones on, and he is singing for all he's worth. And I looked at him and I smiled and I thought, oh, he's going to feel embarrassed. No, he smiled right back at me. He's having a great time. Our life is filled with opportunities for these three things. The question is, are we willing to do them? And are we willing to let them be part of our existence? And are we willing to dedicate pieces of our lives to what God is about in our existence today? Because if we're not, we are missing out on the grace that he wants to give us. We are missing out on the heart of worship. And it takes these minimal, tiny, little disciplines to get what God wants done in your life. And if you're not doing that, let me just challenge you that our church is struggling and your life is struggling as a result. You know, there's a real fallacy in our world today that says that when we get to church, We're supposed to be able to experience worship. But wherever you experience worship, it's because people have dedicated their lives to personally worshiping ahead of time. You don't get here to worship. We come together to worship to bless each other. You have fantastic, important gifts that are different than mine. And we have things that we're supposed to join in the middle. And what God's pouring through you is important to my life. And what God's pouring through me is important to your life. And we're supposed to be a part of this gigantic worship celebration every Sunday, but it's a product of everything that's going on beforehand. And if it's not a product of what's going on beforehand, then we're truncating, we're cutting off a piece of what God has in mind for our lives. This is a little bit frightening. And a little bit indicting, the fact that God wants worship to be a product, and church is a product of everybody's individual worship life, that's what it's intended to be, instead of the place where you go to find worship. If you come here thinking this is what's supposed to change you, you're missing out. That's supposed to happen to some extent, but the big thing that's supposed to happen is you're supposed to add on to a growing number of people who are transformed by God's power. And that means their worship lives are pouring into you and your worship life is pouring into them. And what you do on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. is really critical. Maybe even more important, what happens Saturday night with you is really important. Go to bed too late and you're just too tired on Sundays? You won't experience this place. I'm not meaning to guilt you. I slept through more sermons than you're ever going to. Seriously. But what we want is a life-giving church. And a life-giving church is the product of people who are living life-giving lives. And they've experienced the life of God, and they've experienced this resurrection through these three basic disciplines. Let me tell you that at points, prayer does not feel good. At points, the scriptures just don't seem to speak, and yet I'm changed by them. And at points, the music, I just don't like a certain song, right? We've all been there, and yet we have to hunker down and fight through all of those little pieces to get to the massive hole of what God intends for us when he says, you are to be people who love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You are to be people who are set free by the power of Christ to respond in freedom. That is our heritage. The church has always believed there's three places for worship to take place. It doesn't believe that worship is supposed to take place in one. It's supposed to take place in three. It's supposed to take place here, but this is the product of what happens in the home. And the home is the product of what happens in individual secret lives. Believe it or not, God wants you to be a home and your family to be a home that's filled with worship. What you do with your children and with each other as husbands and wives matters greatly. If you're not praying for each other, if you're not lifting each other up, if you're not sharing scripture back and forth, if you're not playing some music in your house that centers thing on what what God's all about, then you're missing out. Family worship is always one of the things the church believed in. Quite frankly, let me say this and get a little more drastic. The church is not primarily a place where people are supposed to learn and benefit from Christian education. It's not primarily a place where we all agree on certain decisions and we have a church board or a congregational business meeting, so we kind of gather and come together about what it means to be a church. That's not it at all. It's not about youth groups. It's not about age-related groups. It's not about Sunday school. It's not about bylaws and constitutions. It's not about budgets, and it's not about tech stuff and AV. It's about prayer. It's about scripture, and it's about music. And it's about these three things, uniting and being connected to what the heart of God is all about. And when that happens in a church, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a thing because it exists first in the family. And if it exists first in the family, it exists first in the individual, the secret, quiet place of your life. There's this passage in Mark or in Matthew chapter 6 that I'm going to read for you. It's a little bit of a nasty passage. It says this, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Just enter the word worship. Prayer is one component of it. When you pray, when you act out the verb of worship, you must not be like the hypocrites. That word means actor. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. There's a fallacy in our day that we can come here and experience God. And that's not what God ever intended. And he actually spoke it all the way back through Jesus in this passage. There are all sorts of hypocrites who can show up in church and they can. I'm not. If your hands were up, please don't feel like I'm indicting you. And if you're a worshiper here this morning, by all means, keep worshiping. But it's easy to show up and feel worship sometimes in church, at least a minimal version of it. And we can feel God somehow, or at least look like we do. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you. They have received their reward. This isn't real, he says. You're acting, you're posing, you're playing, but you're not actually living out what God intends. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Every bit of worship starts in the tiniest little place that nobody can take away from you. It's called your heart. And nobody knows what goes on in the human heart except for God and that person who lives there. Most of us shut the door on our hearts and don't want to look in there because they're a little bit dark anyway. And God says, let me let, let me, let me end through prayer and let me train you through scripture and let me transform you through musical worship. And let me tell you that that will change the world around you. It will change your family first and it will change your church eventually. And what's more is it might change the world around you all the way. We had this praise and prayer service. And let me just tell you that family worship is where I struggle. I hate it. And I started hating it with my parents. My dad, every now and then, would say on a Saturday night, okay, kids, we're going to worship in the living room. (laughs) And my brother and I, he's an undercover cop today, and I'm a pastor, and we still have the same look on our face at Christmas when when my dad tries to do this. He still tries to lead us in family devotions, and we're still like... (gasps) Okay, time to sit on the kids for 20 minutes, you know, and and my dad would say, okay, let's go gather in the living room. We gather in the living room. My mom always got this strange little nostalgic tone in her voice. It had an extra amount of phlegm or something. And she'd be like, oh, I can't wait till we all worship. And oh, my brother and I hated it. And then they would pray. And it was like this waiting. My dad would read some bit of scripture and, uh, and we would all go, okay, yeah, we were okay. Now we're going to pray. And he'd say, okay, I'm mom, you lead off. My mom would pray. And then she'd, he'd say, okay, now you guys all pray when you feel led. We're going to feel led. <laughs> so we all sat there. I know this is terrible, isn't it? But we're all sitting in a circle, and my brother and I would be like, looking at each other like, please, somebody feel led. Because nobody ever felt led. But finally, the fact that we're not praying means that we might as well just jump in and start praying. And so, I mean, oh, God, help us. <laughs> and eventually we got it out and then we all went to bed and it was like the only night of the week as kids we wanted to go to bed early you know we were like okay time to go and I try to get my kids to worship and we pull it off a little bit I notice there are more fights during our family worship time than at any other time and Noah for reasons I can't quite figure out likes to sit on his head literally he puts his feet in the air and sits inverted every time we worship that's Noah's call I'm, I'm like but didn't I tell you last week we're not going to sit on our heads anymore during family work? No, I don't remember that, Dad. It's true. This is actually, I, I swear, everything that could go wrong goes wrong in this moment. And yet we do it. And sometimes we even sing. I have a story I tell my kids and I'm so embarrassed about it, I won't even tell it in front of anybody else. We have all these little pieces and it, it's growing intricate. There's little more and more to it every year. Shelby has things she pours into those kids, and I have things that I pour into those kids, and they're very different things. You can imagine Shelby and I's personality. We don't give them the same gifts, but they're gifts, both of them. And I don't know what effect that has, and I do know the conflict that it raises, and I've been struggling as a parent to know what that means because I believe in it and yet how to action it. And so I'm telling you this authentically because some of you are going, my kids would never do that. My kids don't do it. I just try it. And I know that my parents, when they did it, they blessed me. They changed me, okay? And I look back, and at moments when I wanted God, I realized this is where to go. Even if I don't know how to go there, this is where to go. And my parents transformed my life by, by building in this family worship thing. As much as I hated it and loathed it and my brother and I make fun of it, it was of God. And I'm trying to do it with my family, and I wonder if it works. And then this moment, and I don't tell you this because I want you to hear all of the struggle and all of the frustration of what it means to be a worshiper that I don't like to spend time alone with God and I don't like my family to have to do it with me. And sometimes church is just plain difficult to get to even for me. But God calls us to all three of these things and they are disciplines and one transforms the other and they all include prayer, scripture and worship, right? And so this final story, and it makes me look good and it makes Shelby look better, go figure. And yeah, I want you to hear all of the ways we don't look good because one shiny moment does not erase all of the struggle to get to that one moment. But well, we were up here in this place. I'm going to you guys have noticed I've been emotional lately and I'm going to struggle just a little bit. But we're sitting in a circle up here and we had this like praise night. And some of you maybe have been, were here. I don't remember who was in the room. And we had this like, um, you know, Tim had his guitar out because he's a worshiper, you know, and he's just strumming away. Played a couple of songs. We had a time of prayer. It's really cool. People prayed. Unlike my brother and I, we actually do like to pray now, apparently. At least we act like we do. But we prayed, and we got to the end. And Tim had said this weird line, like, when you get to the end, it's okay if there's silence. And he said, it's just all right if we stop. So we all stopped, and we were sitting there. And we were kind of like, what comes next? And Tim, he has like a measurement in his head for when to start talking and when not to or something. I haven't learned this art yet. And he, he was like, something more is supposed to happen. I could see he was sitting over there not acting as the leader. And we were all sitting there in silence. I started to have those feelings like my brother and I had when I was a kid. You know, like, uh, Tim, time to say amen. We're going to go home, you know. And then Maggie, and my daughter, started to sing. Just by herself. And she sang this blessing out of numbers. It's called the Priestly Blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. May he bring you rest. May he shine his face upon you. All these words. And if you haven't heard Maggie sing, it's a treasure. I mean, I'm not picking on that just because she's my kid. But she actually can hold a tune. And she sang this out. And these are brick walls. And it sounded better to hear Maggie sing in here than I've ever heard anybody sing. And it's not because our praise team isn't better. But it's because she was singing from her heart. In a moment where I wondered, all of this stuff, is it transforming anything? All of this attempted worship, is it going anywhere? All of this scripture and worship and prayer, is it, is it changing? And then all of a sudden, Maggie just started to sing. And I thought, maybe this is worth it. Maybe God is transforming us through this thing called worship, and maybe he's transforming my kids. And I don't see, the, the most difficult thing about being a parent is that I don't see inside Maggie's heart, right? any more than I see inside yours. What goes on between God and Maggie is a complete mystery to me as her dad. I try to order her life and tell her, you're going to have a relationship with God. And then she says, yeah, sure. But then in the moment when she has quiet and silence, she started to sing. I want to be a church where if you left us all alone and we didn't know what to do, our hearts would sing. Maybe not our voices. But wouldn't it be great if we look back on that moment When Jesus' heart wasn't beating and his lungs weren't compressing and his synapses in the brain weren't firing. And we looked at that moment when life came from death. And wouldn't it be great if that transformed our lives to the moment when people left us alone and when we had a bit of moments of silence where we would just gravitate towards the Father God and we would go back to worship? Wouldn't that be amazing? God has called you first and foremostly before you do anything else in your life to be a worshiper. God has called you to prayer. He has called you to scripture and he has called you to music. He has called you to do these things because the disciplines of what it means to be a worshiper protect the heart of what God most wants with you. And that is a relationship and a connection. I have found after years of marriage that my wife doesn't like it when I don't pay attention to her. And God doesn't like it any more than she does. And when we go a whole day without paying attention to the God of the universe who brought his son from death to life for you and for me, how does he feel? I'm not trying to guilt you, but how does he feel? And if we don't get past this, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. If we can get to that shut door and that closed closet of our heart and we can join him in worship, what he's saying is, I can make you people who love me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength because I'm worth loving. Amen? Amen. Join me in prayer.